So let us pray for the peace of the world. Almighty God, from whom all thoughts of truth and peace proceed, kindle, we pray thee, in the hearts of all men, the true love of peace, and guide with thy pure and peaceable wisdom those who take counsel for the nations of the earth, that in tranquility thy kingdom may go forward till the earth is filled with the knowledge of thy love, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, I've already received questions today about the situation in the Middle East, in particular in Palestine, in Israel, and uh, I'm going to answer one of those questions. If you have been paying attention to the Eastfire, you know that I'm going to address the whole Middle Eastern situation and the situation with Israel this Sunday in a special rector's forum. We'll take a break from our study of the Gospel of John and we'll discuss this issue at that point. Um, if you think you already understand the situation, you can feel free not to come. Um, or you can come just out of curiosity as I attempt to cover 4,000 years of history in 45 minutes, um, whichever you choose. But um, somebody has asked me just one question, which I said I would go ahead and answer at the beginning. And the question is, why is it that down through the centuries, the Jews seem to be such a beleaguered, persecuted, and hated people almost everywhere they have gone? Why is that? Um, and certainly that is an undeniable fact. That's not an opinion. That has certainly been the case wherever the Jews have been. And we'll highlight some of this, the strong feeling of anti-Semitism that has existed uh, in nearly every place at every point in history. We'll talk about that on Sunday. But I, I'll give you two short answers to that question, and then you'll have to come and hear the full Monty on Sunday. But one issue, of course, is that they are God's chosen people. And human beings, in their fallen nature, are opposed to God. So in one respect, it's not all that surprising that people are opposed to the Jewish people because they are, quite frankly, the means by which God has brought salvation to the world. It was through the Jewish people that the Savior of the world arrived. So if human beings are by nature opposed to the things of God, we shouldn't be surprised that they are opposed to the Jews. But I think just from a human perspective, um, much closer to home, I think one of the reasons why the Jews have always been persecuted and hated and ostracized wherever they have been is because they are very different. And you know how this is. Um, we don't like things that are different. We're uncomfortable. We feel threatened, frightened by things that are different. And the Jews have always been different. Um, theirs is not just a religion. Theirs is an ethnicity. They are unique among the peoples of the earth in that regard. And even in terms of their religion, they are different. In the ancient world, they were unique uh, because in the ancient world, the vast majority of people were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. Um, but the Jews, of course, were monotheistic, and they believed in only one god. Now, we live in an age where the great religions, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, are all monotheistic. But you understand that in the ancient world... That was not the case. People believed in a pantheon of deities, and here were the Jews. They were different. In fact, this is interesting, the Greeks and the Romans referred to the Jews as atheists. Why? Because to them, atheism was not a failure to believe in any god. It was a failure to believe in many gods. So that made them unique in a culture of polytheism. Here they were, people who believed in only one god. And then the second thing, of course, was that they had all of these rules and these regulations that were different from the peoples of the earth. 
the kosher laws and so forth, and the Sabbath restrictions and so forth. And these were all things that made them stand out from peoples in other places, particularly during the times when the Jews were forced to flee what was known as ancient Palestine, and they, they went to other parts of the world, to Europe and so forth. They, they, they stood out. And because they were an ethnic group, they would often gather in small communities and small neighborhoods, and they were distinct. And I think as a consequence of that, they were viewed with great suspicion by the people around them. And so down through the centuries, they have been persecuted and beleaguered. And yet there's no question about the fact, as we're going to see as we continue our study of Paul's epistle to the Romans, that God has a plan for them. Indeed, that's what we're looking at in these chapters 9 through 11. So I think that's uh, the reason, but come on Sunday and we'll try to help you make sense of the crisis in the Middle East and why the situation there requires really divine intervention. It needs a supernatural intervention in order for us to have peace. And if you have peace in Jerusalem, my friends, I guarantee you, you will have peace in the world. So, well, let's turn our attention today now to Romans chapter 9. Um, if you think that that is a difficult subject in the Middle East, we come to an even more difficult subject here in Romans chapters 9 through 11. We come to the whole doctrine of election or predestination and the corresponding doctrine of reprobation. And of course, at this point, many people want to collect their Bibles and just get out of here, and I understand. But too late, you're a captive audience. But go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 9, and let's go ahead and read through verses 1 through 12. We started looking at Romans chapter 9 last week. Uh, Paul is trying to answer this question, this charge, that God's promise to the Jews, his covenant people, has failed. And Paul makes the argument that no, that is not the case. God's promise to his people has not failed. But the answer to that is, well, a great many of the Jewish people have not believed. They have not believed in the Messiah. They have not believed in Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation, then it appears as though God's promise to them as a nation, as a people, has indeed failed. And what Paul's going to do in these chapters, 9 through 11, is he is responding to that charge. He is answering that question. So just keep that context in mind as we begin the study. Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race... According to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the oldest will serve the younger. For as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So now I can already hear the grumbles out there. And I want to begin by acknowledging a couple of things right off the bat. That we are beginning a study of what I think and what many people think is the most difficult section, not just in the epistle to the Romans or in the New Testament, but I would argue the most difficult section in the entire Bible. I think this is a section that is more difficult um, than the prophecies that you find in the book of Revelation concerning the end times. I think this is more difficult than uh, the prophecies that Jesus talks about in the Gospels about the destruction of Jerusalem. I think this is more difficult than even those strange and fantastic visions that you find, those apocalyptic visions that you find in the book of Daniel. And you know, a great deal of ink has been spilled about all of those subjects trying to make sense of them and trying to fit them into the whole stream of history. But I would suggest to you that chapters 9 through 11 of Romans are even more difficult and difficult primarily because they're troublesome to people than any other section of the Bible. So somebody might say, well, then why should we study them in the first place? If they are so controversial, if they're so difficult, if they're so troublesome, why should we do this? Well, I think we need to do it for the simple reason that there are many things in the Bible that you and I do not understand. And I want to acknowledge right from the beginning that there are going to be some aspects of what Paul teaches here in these chapters that you and I are not going to understand. And, and that's simply because you and I are human beings. We are finite creatures, whereas God is infinite. Paul says we see through a glass darkly. That is to say that there are many things that we simply do not understand. We do not comprehend because we are creatures rather than the creator and simply because we are fallen creatures. So even if God were to explain them to us, I'm not entirely sure we would be able to understand them completely. But nevertheless, here they are. They are taught in scripture and that means that we need to engage them and we need to try to understand. We need to try to expand our minds and our imaginations in order to understand God's purposes in history. Furthermore, there are many things, and I'm speaking personally at this point, there are many things that I do not understand, but I nevertheless believe them. And there are lots of things in the Bible that quite frankly, I don't understand. I don't understand, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity. The idea that God is one, yet revealed in three distinct persons, that there is Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity. I don't understand that. Thomas Jefferson didn't understand it either. He said that Christianity would be much better off if it dispensed with this troublesome arithmetic that one plus one plus one equals one. But I believe it, and I believe it because, well, it's revealed to us, and it's the teaching of the church. There are things like, for example, the two natures of Christ, what theologians refer to as the hypostatic union, the idea that Jesus is at one and the same time fully God 
and yet fully human. Not 90, 10, 80, 20, 70, 30, 60, 40, 50, 50, it's, it's, it's nothing like that. It, we believe that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully divine, one with the Father, God of lo- God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, by whom all things were made, and yet we believe that while he is equal with the Father and worthy of worship, he is also fully human. Tempted in every way, just as we have been tempted, and yet without sin. Now you say, well, how can that be? I'll be honest with you, I don't know. But I believe it. Like most of you, I struggle with the whole question of evil. How, if God is good and has created a good world, well, where did evil come from in the first place? How did that happen in a world that was created good? I confess to you there are aspects to that I do not understand. I don't understand the whole issue of suffering I understand it in part, but I certainly don't understand it fully. Somebody might say, well, we suffer in this world. We go through difficult times because we live in a fallen world. Well, that is true. There's no doubt about that. We live in a fallen world. It is not a perfect world. But that doesn't answer the question why some people suffer more than other people. Those are all things that we do not understand. Now, that does not mean that we cannot believe There are lots of things that you and I believe in that we don't understand. I don't understand singularities in space, black holes, that sort of thing. In fact, nobody seems to understand those things today, and yet nobody denies their existence. Most people believe in them. So there are many things that we do not understand. God doesn't tell us everything. What he gives us is enough for us to believe, and when it comes to these matters that we cannot comprehend fully, we are called upon to trust him to trust his goodness, to trust his grace, to trust his mercy, to trust his justice. That's what it means to walk by faith as opposed to walking by sight. So if you're one of those people that says, well, unless I can understand it, I will not believe it, well, good luck to you. Because God's answer to you is going to be precisely the same answer that he gave to Job when Job couldn't understand all the things that he was going through. All the disasters that had befallen him and his family. Do you remember what God did to Job? He said, gird up your loins like a man. You're going to question me, you, the creature, question the creator. Here, we're going to turn the tables a little bit. I'm going to question you. And for several chapters, God goes on to question Job. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I set the boundaries of the sea? Where were you when I did this, 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 and this? And finally, you get to the end, and, and, and Job says, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I can't take it anymore. You're God. I'm not. And so I think we simply need to acknowledge that when we enter into this because there are parts of this that are going to be very difficult for us to comprehend and to understand. So let's just dive in and see how far we get today. And if you come out more confused at the end of the class than you were when I began, well, it won't be a surprise. Now, Paul, of course, talks about this whole issue of election. And what's interesting is that he begins with the fact of election. Paul knows that this is going to be a troublesome doctrine to those who are reading it. He understands that. But he nevertheless begins with the fact 
of election. And I think that's where we need to begin. The question is not, do I like this doctrine or not? Do I find this easy to accept, easy to swallow? That is irrelevant, folks. The question is, is it true? It's, it's like people who say to me, well, I just can't believe in a God who would ever send somebody to hell. And by answer to that, ever heard somebody say that? Oh, I could just never believe in a God who would ever send somebody to hell. Or I would never believe in a God who would ever do this, that, or the other thing. You ever hear people say that sort of thing? My answer to that is always the same. Oh, yes, you can. You can believe in such a God, but what you're really saying is you don't want to believe in such a God. When you say, I cannot believe in a God who would ever send anybody to hell, what you're really saying is, I don't want to believe in a God who would send somebody to hell. But that is irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether you want to believe in such a God or not. The question is, does such a God exist? And if he does, then that's the God with whom we have to deal. So the question is not, do we like the doctrine of election or not? The question is, is this the way that God acts in history? And if it is, then you and I, like it or not, we've got to deal with it. And that's exactly how Paul approaches this subject in Romans chapter 9. He's going to go and show us that election is not just something that is arbitrary on God's part. It's not just something that suddenly appears here in Romans chapter 9. This has actually been God's purpose throughout history. And because he's speaking not only to Gentiles but to Jews, and he's talking specifically about the Jews here in these chapters, he goes back to the beginning of the Jewish story. He goes back to Abraham. And he says, God chose Abraham. That's where he begins. God chose Abraham. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, no Jew would have disputed the fact that God chose Abraham. And you have to ask yourself the question, when and why did God choose Abraham? You understand, this is God's plan. God looks upon the human race and he realizes that it's a race in ruin. We rebelled against God in Eden. We wanted to be like God. That's, that's the real sin of the Garden of Eden, you understand. The real sin of the Garden of Eden is not that they ate of the fruit of the tree. The real sin of Eden was that they ate of the fruit of the tree. Why? They wanted to be like God. That, that, that's the root of all sin. What does it mean to be like God? It means you want to be in charge of your own life. You want to be the master of your own fate. You want to be the captain of your own destiny. You don't want anybody telling you how to live your life. That's what it means to be God. You're answerable to no one. And this plays its way out in, in big things as well as small things. You've heard me talk about it. The best way I can describe it is it's like being in a hurry and, and you're traveling up East Bay Street. And, and, and you're trying to get someplace, and there's potholes left and right, and in addition to everything else, there are these stoplights. And when the light turns from green to yellow, you're supposed to do what? Slow down. And when the light, ah, there you go. When the light hits red, you are supposed to stop. But how many of us, when we're in a hurry... 
and the light turns yellow, and I'm one of the primary offenders in this regard, you hit the gas. See, you see the green light, then the yellow light, then the red light, and you know you're supposed to hit the brake, but you hit the gas pedal, and you go speeding through, and then lo and behold, you see another light. It's in your rearview mirror, and it's blue. And you get pulled over, and the officer comes up and he says, you know, you ran a red light and you are so angry. You are so angry that you got pulled over. Now, you know, you violated the law, but you are so angry that you got pulled over that he called you to account because of that. Now, imagine you're going up East Bay Street and you're not in a hurry. You're just taking, in fact, you're going someplace you really don't want to go there, so you're just taking your time to get there. And the light turns yellow, and the guy next to you, and you know it's very narrow there anyway, just goes barreling through the red light. And if you're anything like me, you say to your wife, where is a cop when you need one? You see, it's okay for us to break the law and do our own thing, but it's not okay for somebody else to do it. That is the desire to be in charge. That's the desire to be like God. And as I said, it plays itself out in simple things. It plays itself out in very complex things. That's one of the reasons why when we do something wrong and somebody calls us to account, we always have an excuse. Why we are justified in doing it. So God looks upon the human race and he realizes that we rebelled against him. And what does he do? He determines to save humanity, not because we deserve it, but in spite of the fact that we don't. And so he calls a particular man. And through this particular man, he's going to call a particular people. And this particular people will become a particular nation. And through this particular nation, he will bring a particular savior. That Savior is Jesus Christ, who will become the Savior of that particular people, but also the Savior of the entire world. And that process of salvation, the means by which God is going to redeem us from the fall and the curse of the fall, which is death, is by the calling of this man, Abraham. All right, he calls Abraham. Now, if you know anything about the background of Abraham... You know that God called Abraham not because of anything that Abraham had done. That's Paul's whole argument. God chooses Abraham to be the fountainhead of this nation whereby salvation is going to come to the entire world. But when he calls Abraham, where is Abraham living? In ancient Mesopotamia in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which is a pagan land. And who is Abraham worshiping? Idols. The Chaldeans were idol worshipers. And what's interesting is that the Old Testament acknowledges this fact. Joshua, in chapter 24, at the very end of that sermon that Joshua gives to the people, reminds them of the fact that their forefathers, the father of Abraham, had been living in darkness and had been worshiping false gods. And I'm sorry to say that even after God called Abraham, the problem of idol worship did not go away. 
Because you go on down to the third generation and you read about this. Turn to Genesis chapter 31 for just a moment. And you can see that this was a problem in the family from the very beginning. And it continued on even after God revealed himself to Abraham. Now this is the story of Jacob. Jacob is Abraham's grandson. Abraham, Isaac. Isaac had two sons. Jacob and Esau, Jacob, we're going to talk about Jacob in a moment. Uh, Jacob is working for his uncle Laban, and he has a wife, and here's what happens. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 31, verse 19. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock and all his property that he had gained. He'd fallen out of favor with Laban, that's why he's leaving. The livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padam Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household what? Doesn't say household goods. She stole the idols. Which meant here's Jacob and his wife living in the home of an idol worshiper. And when they leave, what does she take with her? Her father's gods. Now you think about that. Abraham lives in darkness in a land of pagans, in a land of idol worshippers. His family continues the practice, at least to some measure, in worshipping idols. Why in the world would God choose this man to be the fountainhead of the nation by which he would save the world? What was the reason that God chose Abraham as opposed to somebody else? No, it's not because he believed. Because he believed after God revealed himself to him. We don't know why God chose Abraham. God chose Abraham, why? Because it pleased God to do so. The whole point is that Abraham hadn't done anything that was worthy of God's choosing him. He was a pagan. His family were pagans. They were living in darkness. And yet God set his affection upon Abraham. You know what we call that? Grace. It was undeserved, unearned favor. So that's the first argument that Paul makes here in Romans chapter 9. He's saying to these people, you should not be surprised about the doctrine of election. That's how the nation began, with God electing Abraham. And it would be Abraham's descendants who would be a what? Chosen race. So, Abraham is chosen. He is chosen not because of anything that he had done in spite of the fact that he is actually living in darkness and in paganism, God chooses him. Now, somebody might say, well, yes, okay, Paul, that's, that's great. You know, Paul's a very logical thinker, but Paul also was anticipating all the objections that were going to be raised. And somebody might raise the objection, okay, it's true. We acknowledge the fact that God chose Abraham even when he was living in darkness and paganism. But hey, Paul, God has to start somewhere. And, and really what we're talking about here is, is not the calling of an individual, but rather the calling of a nation. 
It's the calling of a nation because Abraham is going to be the father of the nation of Israel. So that's what we're really dealing with. Well, that's a pretty good objection. How does Paul respond to it? Paul responds by reminding them that actually Abraham had two sons, didn't he? He had Isaac by Sarah, but he had had another child, a son, 13 years before. His name was what? Ishmael. And that was the son of Abraham by his slave, Hagar. So, really? Here's the firstborn son is actually Ishmael. And yet God chose to produce his chosen people not through the firstborn son, but rather through the secondborn son, who is Isaac. So, that's Paul's response to that. It's through the child of the promise that Abraham's heirs will be named. So the idea that God simply chose Abraham because he had to start somewhere and Abraham was the father of the nation, actually Paul says that's not the case because what you see is that God had, could have chosen Ishmael, but instead he chose Jacob, or Isaac rather. Now, the answer, and Paul anticipates an objection to this, the answer and the objection to this is yes, but the reason why God chose Isaac as opposed to Ishmael is because Ishmael was not a pure-blooded Jew. He was a child of Abraham by a pagan woman, Hagar. Whereas Isaac was a pure-blooded Jew, Abraham and his wife, Sarah. So that's the argument that Paul anticipates. How does Paul respond to that? He said, yes, but let's not forget that Isaac had children as well. Jacob and Esau. And what is interesting is that both of those children were pure-blooded Jews. Both of them. They had the same mother, same father. Father was a pure-blooded Jew, and the mother was a pure-blooded Jew, Rebecca, two pure-blooded Jews. And yet, what is interesting is that God chose which one? He chose the younger one. He chose Jacob over Esau. Now, Paul's argument is twofold. First of all, God chose Jacob over Esau, and he chose Jacob over Esau. Why? Well, not because Jacob was the firstborn. Actually, he was the secondborn. They were twins, but according to the law of primogeniture, the first child to come out of the mother's womb is the heir. And Jacob was not the first one out. Who was the first one out? Esau. In fact, you know the story. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad. See, that's what we think. Well, God chooses Abraham because Abraham was good, but Abraham lived in paganism. We think God chose Isaac because he was a pure-blooded Jew as opposed to Ishmael, who was not. But Paul says, look at these two boys. 
They came from the same stock, same mother, same father. Actually, the younger is going to reign over the older, and God chooses the younger before either of them had done anything right or wrong. It wasn't on the basis of one was better than the other or more righteous or more attractive than the other. It had nothing whatsoever to do this with that. It was for one purpose and one purpose only. Here's the second half of verse 10. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. For as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now that's why I say this is a troublesome doctrine to us. It's difficult. We struggle with it. But Paul begins with the fact that election is a fact. It's a fact from the very beginning with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. It's to emphasize the fact that God and God alone is sovereign. Now, over the years, objections have been raised to this doctrine of election. Nobody can deny it. In fact, when I was in seminary, I had a professor who taught um, Pauline theology. And one of the things that he said was, um, you have to have a doctrine of election. He said, I'm not going to tell you what kind of doctrine you have to have. He said, but you've got to have a doctrine of election because he said it is inescapable in the scriptures. Now, perhaps some people feel that, well, maybe God elects people on the basis of his foreknowledge or what is sometimes described as middle knowledge. Some people argue that what God does is he looks down the corridor of time and he sees those who are going to choose him and those who would reject him. And on the basis of those who he knows beforehand would choose him, he elects them to salvation and he passes over the others. He said, if that's the doctrine you want to have, that's fine, but you've got to have a doctrine of election because it is inescapable. Now, I'm going to explain to you why I think that that doctrine is not the right one to have. But the point is, we cannot escape this. We cannot escape election. The very fact that the Jews are God's chosen people, as opposed to some other nation, is indicative of the fact that election is part of the biblical teaching. Now, some people, as I said, have argued, well, yes, this is true, but even when it comes to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're still talking about nations here. We're still talking about groupings of people. We're not talking about individuals per se. It's in choosing Abraham, it's in choosing Isaac, it's in choosing Jacob that God chooses a race, a people, an ethnic group, a nation. And indeed, it is true, Paul is talking about what? The nation of Israel here. And so some people are arguing we're not talking about individuals, we're talking about nations. And we've already indicated that that is something that may be possible. And actually, is a pretty good argument for it. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Israel is described as a chosen nation. And it's interesting to note why they were chosen. Keep your finger there in Romans and turn back to Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the last of the first five books of the Bible. And let's just take a look at Deuteronomy for just a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. 
Now, this seventh chapter of Deuteronomy, if you're reading out of the English Standard Version, out of the Study Bible, you'll see it's, the heading is a chosen people. And it says this, we're going to, the, the pertinent verses are six through eight, but let's go ahead and read through one through eight. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all the sites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram poles and burn their carved images with fire. Why should you do this? Well, here it comes. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That's why you are separate. You are to come out from among them and be different. For the Lord your God has chosen you to be the people for his treasured possessions out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now, if you were to stop right there, there would be no trouble. Because you say, God must have seen something in the Jews that he didn't see in all these other people, the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and so forth, and so he chose them. But look at what follows. That's not what the Lord says. It was not because you were more in number, verse 7, than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the people's. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your forefathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, the king. Why did God choose the Jews? Because they were a great people, a plentiful people. A faithful people, what we're going to see is they were continuously unfaithful. Why did God choose them? Because it pleased him to do so. So there's no denying the fact that, yes, Israel is referred to as a chosen nation. And that nation comes from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you could argue that the election of those three men in particular was God's means of electing a nation by which he would, as I said at the very beginning, bring salvation to the world. Another argument to support this idea is found in Genesis chapter 25 and 23, where the two children, Jacob and Esau, in Rebekah's womb are referred to as two nations, not just two boys, two sons, but as two nations. One will become the nation of Israel, one will become the what? Some would say that's exactly what you would get. Yes, a different nation, a different people. Not only that, but Romans chapter 9, which is what Paul is talking about here, 9 through 11, he is dealing with the nation of Israel. So the argument can be made, and it needs to be acknowledged that 
yes, perhaps Paul is talking about nations here. But while that is a good argument, what I want to suggest to you is that it's not good enough. And here's the reason why it's not good enough. In this particular section of the epistle to the Romans, Paul, while he's dealing with the nation as a whole, is also dealing with individuals. Remember, the argument was this. God's promise to Israel has failed because there were many individual Jews who had what? Not accepted the Messiah. Now, Paul's argument was that it is true, many Jews have not accepted the Messiah, but he also makes the argument that some of us have. There was a faithful remnant. Paul, for example, says, I'm a Jew, and I've accepted the Messiah. And yes, there are others who have not rejected the Messiah, but this was always God's plan from the beginning, that there would always be a remnant, that the nation as a whole, just because they are the children of Abraham by the flesh, does not mean that they are the true sons of of Abraham. See, what he's really dealing with here is individuals. He's not just dealing with nations, he's dealing with individuals. You might ask Paul, well, Paul, why was it then that you believed in the Messiah and all these other Jews who had received the same benefits, all of these great assets, why is it that they did not believe and you did believe? And what do you think Paul's going to say? Well, what Paul is going to say is exactly what he's already said here. He said, God chose me the same reason he chose Israel, not because of anything that I had done, not because of any good that he had seen in me, but because it pleased him to do so. That's his argument here, you see. Paul knew that election was true not only because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as individuals as opposed to a nation, but Paul knew that election was true because he knew that he would never have chosen Jesus Christ if Christ had not chosen him. He knew that from his own experience. And that's why he makes a distinction, you see, between those who are the true Israel by faith they believe in the promise and those who are simply the children of Abraham by the flesh, which he said are not the true sons of Abraham at all. Now that's heavy stuff and I understand that. But I think if we were to sit down and ask Paul, could it have been any other way? Paul would have said no. He would say that election must be God's plan of salvation when you take into consideration the human condition. Remember what Paul has already said several chapters earlier in this same epistle. We're in chapter 9, but six chapters earlier in Romans chapter 3, he's describing the human condition, and what does he say about human beings? He says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. He says, there is no one who seeks God. In other words, if our salvation is contingent upon us believing in Christ, if our salvation is contingent upon us choosing Jesus, then Paul said, how can that be when the human condition is so corrupted that there's no one who seeks God? How could we possibly choose Jesus if there's no one righteous? No, not one. There's no one who longs for God. Paul would say the only way that you and I can choose Christ is if he first what? Takes the initiative. 
And it's not just that. Because somebody might say, well, then God sort of reveals himself to all people. But Paul says, our true spiritual state is, is much worse than that. I'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2. This, when it comes to the doctrine of election, is perhaps one of the most important passages in all the Bible. Because what Paul is doing is he is describing the human condition in Ephesians chapter 2. What I love about Ephesians is that Paul deals with, in this little letter, only about six chapters, with all of the same doctrines that he deals with in Romans, but he deals with them in a very succinct way. Now, in Romans, he really unpacks it, but here, he puts it in language that all of us can understand. There's no confusion whatsoever. Paul describes the human condition beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, so that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here's how Paul describes it. He says, here's our spiritual condition apart from God. As a result of the fall, he said, we are dead. Now, he would say, yes, you're physically alive. I understand that you're up and walking about, but you're a spiritual zombie, the living dead. Because as far as your relationship with God is concerned, it's not just damaged, it's been destroyed. What did God say to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of which I've told you you cannot eat, on the day that you eat of it, you will what? Die. Now, if you remember the story, you know that they ate of the tree and they did not die on that day. I mean, they went on to have children, didn't they? Or did they die? They did not die physically, folks, but what I would argue is that they certainly died spiritually. And they died morally. You know, as human beings, we're made up of three parts. You aware of that? We're made up of a body, we're made up of a soul, and we're made up of a spirit. The body is the fleshly part that we all see, that we all seem to be so concerned with. But it's the part that does not last, you understand. The soul is our personality. It is our moral reasoning. It's what allows us to determine right from wrong. And the spirit, what is the spirit? The spirit is our God consciousness. It is that part of us that distinguishes us from the animals. You know, we're told that some animals are soulish or nephesh animals. That is to say they have personality. Even a dog can know that he shouldn't do this or he can do that. But what human beings have, the dogs and other animals do not have, is we have God consciousness. We have the ability to have a relationship with God. That's what it means to be made in the image of God, to have a relationship with him. But what happens on the day that the man and the woman eat of the fruit of the tree? The very first thing that happens is that that relationship with God is damaged. It's destroyed, as a matter of fact, because we're told that God comes to have fellowship with them, walking with them in the cool of the evening is what he used to do, which I think is a wonderful description if you live in Charleston in August. 
We all long for the cool of the day. We've enjoyed these cool dates. To imagine God walking in a garden in the cool of the day, having a conversation, having fellowship with the man and the woman. That's the picture here of intimacy. But what's the first thing that the man and the woman do when they hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day? Whereas they had enjoyed fellowship with him before, they now hide themselves among the trees of the garden. And God has to search them out. He has to call for them because they have hidden themselves. Because the relationship, you see, has been destroyed. It's what happens in a marriage when one party is unfaithful. The trust, the relationship is irreparably damaged sometimes. And it wasn't just their relationship with God that was damaged. Their moral reasoning was damaged. You've heard me talk about this before. God comes to Adam and he says, what are you doing? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat from? And the very first thing that Adam does is he says, the woman. The woman thou gavest me. She caused me to sin. Now, we always think that it's Adam blaming the woman, but actually it's worse than that. He blames God. He says, it's the woman you gave me. I'm not responsible for this. If anybody's responsible for it, it's her. And truth be known, you really even can't blame her. It's really you. You should have never put that tree in the garden in the first place. You see the sin of Eden? That's what we do all the time, isn't it? We make excuse, and that's exactly what they did. Their moral reasoning perished. And then ultimately, they perished physically as well. So Paul, going back to Ephesians chapter 2, says, you want to know what our spiritual condition is? Our relationship with God? Our relationship with God is dead. It's not just damaged, he says. It's not just hurt. It's not just warped. He says, our relationship with God is dead. You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Dead. Now, that's very forceful language, and it's important because you ask the question, how much good can a dead person do? And the obvious answer is a dead person can't do anything. You can go out and preach the most wonderful sermon that has ever been preached in the graveyard, and you're never going to get a response to the altar call because the people you're preaching to are dead. And Paul says that is our spiritual condition so you can preach the gospel to dead people, but they cannot respond. And if we're spiritually dead, you can preach to us, but because we are spiritually dead, we are incapable of responding to the call. So the only way for us to be saved, to be delivered from our dead state, is if God does for us what Jesus did for Lazarus, and that is makes us alive even when we were dead. And you'll notice that is exactly what Paul says God did for us. Ephesians chapter 2, and as for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. We're not only dead, we're under the judgment of God like the rest of mankind, but, but, these may be the two most beautiful words in all of Scripture, but God. But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Why did he love us? Because we were good? Obviously not. 
We're so bad, we're dead. <laughs> we're children of wrath. We're under judgment. But God loves us in spite of it. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God raised us spiritually in the same way that Jesus raised Lazarus. Why? Because he loved us. Did he love us because we were good? No, obviously we were bad. He loved us in spite of the fact that we were not good. And that's why Paul says, it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with him. This is the language of resurrection. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why is God's goodness, his kindness, his grace immeasurable? Because we've done nothing to deserve it. Nothing. And then Paul goes on to say it again in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. We have a tendency to think that regeneration, the new birth, comes as a result of faith. But that's not what Paul teaches here in Ephesians. Because dead people can't exercise faith, can they? This is why faith as a gift in Scripture is because dead people can't exercise faith. God has to make us alive even when we're dead and then give us the gift of faith. So regeneration, the new birth, actually precedes the faith. Faith is the evidence of the new birth, of regeneration. And that is why Paul says it is a matter of grace. From start to finish, from stem to stern, God's undeserved, unearned favor, because people who are dead cannot exercise faith, and they have done nothing whatsoever that God should save them. Now, Paul says that is our spiritual condition. That was the case with Abraham. Why did he choose Abraham? Not because of anything good Abraham had done. He was living in paganism, in ignorance. The same was true with Isaac. The same was true with Jacob. He chose Jacob over Esau. Why did he do that? Not because Jacob was good. If you read through the Old Testament, Jacob was oftentimes wretched. But God chose them, why? Because it pleased him to do so. Now that does not mean that God does not have a reason for choosing them. It just means that the secret, or that the reason is secret to us. So don't think for one minute that it's a case where God is sort of up there in heaven and he's got this big daisy and he's pulling off the pedals and he say, I love him, I love him not, I love him, I love him not. It's not arbitrary in that way. God has his reasons. The reasons are secret to us. And if God has chosen us, it's not because of anything that we have done. It is because it has pleased him to do so, which means that it is what? All of grace 
undeserved. That's why we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. You see, we have a tendency to say I was once lost, but now found. I was lost, but I eventually found my way back. And what Paul is saying is, no, you were incapable of finding your way back. God had to come out and find you, and had he not done so, you would have been lost forever. That is what he is talking about here. And if you don't believe that, Paul would say, I know, and I've come back to this again. Paul would say, I know that God chose me because I would never have chosen him. I mean, you think about that encounter. You mentioned it, Miss M, that encounter on the road to Damascus. Where was Paul going at the time of his conversion? To kill Christians, to arrest them, to bring them back for trial and execution. We're told he was breathing out murderous threats against the followers of the way. This man was single-minded in his intent to stamp out Christianity once and for all, and nobody was going to stop him. But somebody did. The only one who could. God himself intervened and brought Paul to his knees. And it's really interesting what happens because we're told that, you know, Paul was struck blind on that occasion. He had to be led by a hand into the city of Damascus where he was blind for several days. And he was sorting through all of this. He, he had realized that what he deserved on the road to Damascus was to be turned into a cinder. The very God that he thought he was serving, he had actually been working against. Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul must have thought. How blind was I? How lost was I? And God has stopped me, and he should have turned me into a cinder, but he's allowed me to live, but I've been struck blind. But God sends a man, Ananias, to go, and I love the way the book of Acts describes it, to the home of Judas on Straight Street. We even get the address. Isn't that marvelous? Even get the address. Go to the home of Judas on Straight Street. There is a man who is praying there, a man who's been struck blind, and I want you to go and lay your hands on him that he might have his sight restored. And he says, okay, Lord, who is this person? It's Saul of Tarsus. Oh, you got the wrong guy. I'm not going there. I know this man. I've heard about this man. I know what he does to people like me. And the Lord says, and this is important, he says, you go. I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. God chose Paul. And folks, I think if you look back over the course of your life, you will realize that even if it looks like you chose Christ, even if it looks as though you came to him, it is only because God has been working all things together to bring you to the point where there was really no other choice you could have made. And when you realize that, you realize that it's all of grace. Undeserved, unearned favor. If you're a believer today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it is not because of anything that you have done. It is because God, in his mercy set his affection on you. It's not because you're attractive. It's not because you're intelligent. It's not because you are good. It's because God is merciful and gracious and long-suffering.
And when you realize that, when you realize our spiritual condition, how bad we were, then you can begin to say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Now somebody might say, well, what about my children? What if they've not been elect? Let me tell you something. Leave that to the Lord. Leave that to the Lord. On the last day, nobody's going to be ashamed for God. Nobody's going to be embarrassed because God acted in one way or another. Would you rather God be in control of your children's destiny or would you rather be in control of your children's destiny? Who do you think is going to do the right thing in regard to your children? God's ways are mysterious. There is much, my friends, as I said at the beginning, that we do not understand. And part of that is because God's ways are higher than our ways as the mountains are higher than the seas. But his ways are gracious they are merciful, they are just, and they are altogether good. Now next week when we get together, we'll talk about double trouble, double predestination or reprobation. Okay, God chooses some, but what happens to the others? Maybe a better way of calling this is not double trouble, but double or nothing. And we'll talk about that next week. Let's close with prayer. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace. A grace that was shown to Abraham, not because of anything that he had done. He had lived in abject ignorance, in darkness, following the ways of this world. But you chose him because it pleased you to do so. The same was true for Isaac and for Jacob. For their descendants, Israel was a chosen people, not because they were great or numerous or powerful, but because you set their affection, your affection upon them. And what was true for them is true for us. If we believe today, it is not because we are good, for we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, but because of your great love for us, you made us alive even when we were dead that your purposes in election might be made sure and that the glory, the praise, and the honor might be yours and yours alone. Grant us the grace to even in the midst of things we do not understand to receive it by faith. For we ask it in Jesus' name.